Hello and welcome to Politics War Room with James Carville and I'm Al Hunt. Thanks for joining us. This week, we're joined by the president of the Brennan Center for Justice at NYU School of Law, Michael Waldman. Remember, we take your questions each episode, so write into politicswarroom at gmail.com or send a tweet to at Politicon for next week's show. We'll get to as many as we can, and you're getting a lot better, so be sure and tell us where you're from. This episode is sponsored by Blinkist. Please check out their link in the show notes. We thank you for supporting our sponsors. It helps make this podcast happen. Please tell your friends about us and remind them to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. Hey, James, as always, a uh, lot to talk about. I want to start with the House Republicans dumping Liz Cheney as the chair of their conference and replacing her with Elise Stefani. Now, you know, it's a leadership post. Caucus has every right to choose someone who represents them if, say, a Republican leader were to espouse a big tax increase or embrace Biden's domestic initiatives or champion pro-life causes, they would not represent their members and they should be dumb. Cheney would pass all these tests with flying colors. Her sin? Telling the truth about Donald Trump's big lie about the last election being stolen. He can't admit he's a loser. To a House Republicans comforting Trump's lies seems to me, uh, you know, are more important than national security, taxes, or anything else. It's a party that wallows in this dishonesty. Let me talk for just a minute and turn to you, uh, then, about her replacement, Elise Stefanik. As you know, about five months ago, I did a bunch of reporting on Elise Stefanik. She's a former Bush White House aide. She came to the House six years ago. She saw her future as the co-chair of the, of the Tuesday group. Now, the Tuesday group is a small group of moderate Republicans representing really the what was once called the Bush wing of the party. Then as Trump began to dominate, just watch, watch Ms. Stefanik. She saw the handwriting and she put those principles in a blind trust. And you know, James, we've seen lots of politicians who have changed positions. Some of it's justified, some of it's political. She's in a league of her own. She became, from the Tuesday group, remember, she became Trump's biggest defender on impeachment. Uh, she became joined at the hip, political hip by right-wing hate monger Jim Jordan. She even attended the COVID super spreader Trump rally in Tulsa last June. Remember that one? It was the one that killed Herman Cain. And she was one of those 139 House Republicans who fraudulently didn't accept the election results. The Glenn Falls Post-Star, this is in her district, it's a paper that had endorsed her, said that she, in championing Trump, she has, quote, compromised her character. That makes her a perfect fit for these House Republicans. Elise Stefanik is going to get a much better press than she deserves in the next couple of weeks. This is democracy in action. You take any poll, you ask anybody, the main thing that Republican voters want from Republican office holders is to protect Donald Trump. That, that's it. They, they want that more than they want to cut yep. taxes. They want that more than they want Second Amendment rights. Yep. They want that more than anything. The Republican voters, the people that vote Republican, and in Republican primaries, they want someone to protect Donald Trump. Liz Cheney does not have the support. I, th I think what she did is courageous. This fact makes it even more courageous. The Republican Party, the rank and file, do not support her. That's clear. And, you know, if you fought democracy in action, this is democracy in action. That, that Jim Jordan, who six people said that he knew that that Wrestling coaches molesting wrestlers, too bad. Matt Gates, nothing. Marjorie Taylor Greene, nothing. 
the, the Republican base supports all that they care about. They don't care about molestation or prostitution or any of that. They care about protecting Trump, and that's what they're going to get. And, and, and she will fit, Stefanik will fit right. right in. She'll be a natural with the Jim Jordans uh, and the Matt Getzes uh, of the world. And, and James, you're absolutely right. Uh, at, at some point, political leaders, what they're doing, they are championing a big lie. It's not that they're championing tax cuts that you and I may think are not very good. It's not they're, that they're championing gun laws that we think uh, are, are dangerous. They are championing a big lie that imperils democracy. It really does over the long run. At some point, some leaders have to stand up to them, but it ain't going to happen anytime soon. They're not going to stand up because the Republican voters, they, they're giving Republican voters exactly mm -hmm. what they want. It's just to do it. They're not doing anything. This is, this is democracy at work. Well, Representative owes more than just to follow his uh, followers. But anyway, it's not going to happen. Let me turn to another one. Uh, Rudy Giuliani, under threat, I think it's fair to say, of indictment. He's employing Donald Trump to help him with his legal fees here. The middleman is ex-con Bernie Carrick. The Donald, you know, James, he's he, he not very generous in helping others. But maybe he'll find a way to be generous for Rudy, you well, think? Well, I think it's back legal bills that they're talking about. Of course, Trump never paid Rudy, and Rudy was charging him 20000 a day. Well, why don't, you, why don't you charge him 100000 a day? If you're not going to pay anybody, char charge anything that you want to charge. Uh, yeah, and, and he can't and, pay his current legal course, bills unless Bernie he gets Carrick, his back bills paid. Am I correct that he's a convicted felon? Yeah, he, he, is, yeah, he, he fits right into this crowd. And what he's basically saying is that if you don't pay up, because Rudy's going to, it's hard for me to see how he does not get indicted. I, I mean, that search warrant had to be so airtight, so gone over, so reviewed, so backed up. And, and, and he's saying, if I get indicted, if you don't pay, the, you know, obviously the, the guy, there's only one person that, that Rudy can use to save himself, and that's Donald Trump. And that, that's what that that is. That is a out and out threat, right right in front of them. You got Bernie Carrick, and they're a very felon, telling yeah, you know, br talking on behalf of Rudy, who I, I think is soon gonna be uh, get that moniker to Trump, who don't pay anybody anything, and they collected two hundred fifty million dollars, you know, since November third, and it's all going in Trump's pocket. Some of it's going, I'll say, all in Trump's pocket. Some of them would be going to, to Jerry, Devonka, Don Jr., Eric. You know, this this spread the cash around a pretty good bit. Well, I don't think there are very many people, if any, who probably have as much bad stuff on the Donald as Rudy Giuliani. And what we know about is Ukraine and a few other things. My guess is that that isn't all. There's a lot more there. I mean, Rudy was his... Rudy was his go-to hatchet man for a lot of things, and Rudy, a long time ago, stopped being a right. real Don't, don't, don't real forget lawyer. Lev Parnas, another guy, a fraud ink guy, yeah. right. you know. Right. I mean, th this whole thing is, is, is a felonious freak show. Well, I, I, they certainly are going after Rudy on not registering in the foreign agents, uh, foreign lobbyist uh, disclosure act. But that, I suspect, is the mildest thing they're yeah. looking for. What they're really looking for is uh, is bribery. What they're really looking for is what kind of clients he had in Ukraine when he was the lead man in Alstein, the, the very qualified ambassador, and looking for much, much bigger stuff. 
the, the foreign lobbyist is just like going after Al Capone on income taxes. Right. I, 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 yeah, it, you know, when I should say if, but I think it's more likely that they will indict him. I don't think they're going to invite him on kind of, I don't think it's nitpicking, but, but I don't think they're going to indict him on technical violations. I think they got something else they're looking at much more significant. No, and it's, and, and it's his former office, the United States Attorney's Office in the Southern District, right. that's doing and, that. There's a certain, there's certain justice. Yes, there that, is. And, and believe there you is. me, I, I, I'd be stunned if Merrick Garland himself didn't read every word of that search warrant. Well, either Garland or someone who is very close to him who he trusts. If I'm Merrick Garland, I'll say, I want to see that. Okay, I, yeah. I, I, I want to go over this by line by line. And, you know, a lot of times they'll put, based on information, belief or something, that they, they ain't going to get it with this. I bet you that judge made them, you know, sit down and go through every sentence in that, in that application for that warrant. I'd be stunned if that didn't happen. Speaking of Merrick Garland and the Department of Justice, there was another big story this week that a very respected federal judge, Amy Berman Jackson, has accused Donald Trump's Attorney General William Barr of deceiving the court and Congress about the department's decisions on Donald Trump's obstruction of justice and Barr's duplicitous, politically charged characterization of the Mueller report. This is a big deal, James. It might not open doors well, I, to one or two I other I appreciate it. You, you probably follow this through a little closer than I do. We're going to actually get released all of the internal deliberation that went on in the Justice Department. Yeah. If this turns out to be what I, I think the judge was implying is going to be it, it is potentially very damning, you know, because it, it, it may show. I don't know that 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 Barr was told otherwise, that he he knew what what it is very clear that Robert Mueller thought that Barr had misrepresented or fat lied about what he put out. He wrote a a, a very terse missive to to Mr. Barr about it. To, you know, it's not in, in, yeah, and in I character think, with him. So this story's got a ways to go. And I think the judge noted that he put out that statement Barr did on the Mueller report. Uh, really, it, it's almost certain that he didn't read it before he put it out. This was just coming to Trump's defense. And he, James, I hate to say this, but he he really did set the predicate there. Barr's, what Barr said that day really became uh, very much part of the agenda, uh, I think, uh, to the to the great benefit of I Trump. don't even think he read the blink list version of it. <laughs> well, I hope he's a no, blink list. No, mean, he's, he's too not, stupid to be Listen, I don't have a terribly high regard for <laughs> Attorney General Barr. But if he doesn't get Blinkist, I have even a less regard for him, I want to tell you. I'm telling you, man. I don't think he looked at anything. I think he just, he made up, he had made up his mind no matter what. He was going to take anything he could to say it. But as you know, I, I, I was friending, to, to say the least, highly competent Walter Dillinger thinks that it's almost a slam dunk of thrushing case. In there, and Walter does does not take the view that the Mueller report was disappointing or harmless. That there, there's actual evidence in there of very hard crimes, and he Mueller made clear to say they put it in and they preserved that evidence in case in the future they wanted to pursue this. 
So let, let's see when this breaks out. But there's some chance that they could indict Trump for obstruction of justice. I, I don't think Biden really wants to. But let, let's see what the internal deliberations were like in the Justice Department. They're going to be in a big contest with the U.S. Attorney's Office in New York about uh, indicting him first. Uh, so he's got he's got more than a few don't, legal don't problems, as does Fulton his former counselor. Attorney. Yeah, yeah. Um, James, what else on your mind? Uh, well, okay. you know, the, the, the Liz Cheney thing, it, 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 it's it's it's. The Democrats ought to use this to reinforce what I've talked about before. And we've talked about the Jim Jordan stuff, the Matt Gates stuff, the whatever thing, and, you know, that she's a victim of selective anger. And I, I think that, it, you know, it's probably not good for Liz Cheney's politics, but why her and not them? Now, we know the reason why, but make them say it. Well, Pelosi put out a big statement uh, uh, right before we began this podcast uh, on that very point, uh, really, really going after Republicans on both what they did to Cheney and Stefanik. Right. But it, it, you know, I, I want to talk about if they use when you get the floor, they should talk about other things, too. That, that's all I'm saying. That just keep driving that message yeah. home. Yeah, I agree. Just the final point. I mean, I guarantee you, knowing my business, the press is going to give Stefanik, you know, a pretty good ride the next couple of weeks because she's smart, she's shrewd, uh, she's a young upstate New York woman, and she is totally without principle. And I hope that latter point is stressed as much as the former point, but I rather doubt it's going to be. Hey, James, there are a few Americans who have done as much for equal rights and the rule of law over the past decade and a half as Michael Waldman, who runs the Brennan Center for Justice at NYU Law School. Hey, Michael, welcome to this podcast. It's great to be on uh, and great to be on with both of you. You, you know, Republicans are moving in state after state where they have control to enact voting suppression measures. You've raised the alarms for months President Biden has, the press has, the business community has, but it seems to have no effect. They just march ahead. It's an extraordinary thing. It's a big moment in, I think, the history of our country. Uh, we've had to fight for democracy. We've had to fight for the right to vote from the beginning. And think about what happened in the last election. In 2020, despite the pandemic and despite voter suppression and despite the lies about the election, it was the highest voter turnout since 1900. I mean, that's really extraordinary. And it was, as, as Trump's own Homeland Security Department said, it, it was the most secure election in history. And I think that's something we ought to be celebrating. And instead, you know, of course, the response has been uh, Trump's big lie that the democracy is, is an illusion and the election was stolen. The insurrection, you know, that was driven by that big lie. And now this wave of laws being pushed across the country, also driven by that big lie that would make it harder to vote in many respects, uh, the most since the Jim Crow era. Um, and uh, there has begun to be an outcry. There's begun to be a response. There's begun to be a meaningful pushback. But these Republican legislators are just driving forward. And the Brennan Center's counted up and kept track of all these laws that are being proposed. 
uh, at most recent count, there are 361 separate laws. Um, and they're not just some backbencher, you know, throwing a bill in the hopper to, to have a good day uh, on Twitter. 29 chambers, either the state assembly or the state Senate, have passed one of these laws. Five of them have been signed into law. And they target black voters and brown voters and young people with uncanny accuracy. So it's, and a, Michael, real, you, it's a real you, challenge. You, you noted the Homeland Security, Trump's Homeland Security, talked about what an honest election it was. <clears throat> Governor Rick DeSantis of Florida boasted that they had the best run election ever. It was a perfect model. So what has Governor DeSantis and the legislature done? They're come back and they're coming back and they're enacting laws to make sure even fewer Democrats vote. And Tim Scott says they're, they're really all this is, you know what it's doing? After we suffered these defeats in Georgia and other places, we're really expanding the franchise. You know, I'm reminded of that line from the, the Marx Brothers movie, who are you going to believe, me or your own eyes? I mean, <laughs> in, in, in Georgia, first of all, until a day or two before they voted, the Georgia legislation was even worse. It basically would have eliminated um, vote by mail for anyone under 65, because people over 65 are more likely to be conservative uh, or, or white. Um, it ended... Uh, early voting on the Sunday before Election Day, which is the day that black churches organized their souls to the polls. I mean, it was it was just very precisely targeted. There was the beginnings of an outcry there, and the Republican lieutenant governor of Georgia refused to preside over the state Senate if they were going to vote on that bill. So they 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 trimmed it back, and it's not as bad. It is just as targeted. And of course, it has these things taking away the power, for example, from the Secretary of State or from the counties to decide who wins an election in Georgia and gives it to the legislature. And then they signed it under this oil painting of, of a, a slave plantation. So they're not really fooling anybody. They can't help themselves. Michael, that provision, I think, is the most pernicious. I think that's the one. I mean, you might be able to educate people. You might be able to work on some of the um, some of the absentee ballot stuff. But that one, that means, just again, to elaborate on what you said, it means the election board controlled by the state legislature can replace the Fulton County, the Gwinnett, the Gwinnett County, you know, election officials and, 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 and put in their own person who then decides what were the legitimate votes or not. I mean, there's no way in the world that's not going to produce a fix. And, and we did have in Georgia... Uh, the Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger, who, you know, we at the Brennan Center have fought with a lot over the years. But he actually, when the moment came, stood up to Trump and actually ran a fair election. And they, they had multiple recounts that confirmed it. Florida, too, as you say, they used to brag accurately that the election was pretty smooth there. Um, in, in Arizona, you know, sooner or later, the, the Republican officials said, well, you know, actually, Biden won. I hate to say it, but Biden won. And, and a lot of what these laws would do is to try to change the rules enough so that it'll be that much harder in future elections for Democrats to win if they actually get the most votes. James. So, so Michael, on an off chance that somebody doesn't know exactly what the Brennan Center is, why don't you tell our <laughs> listeners what is the Brennan Center, what are you about, and what is it that you do, and why should we why should our listeners trust the stuff that you're saying that comes out of the Brennan Center? Well, you know, uh, thank you for asking, James. So the Brennan Center is 
a nonpartisan law and policy institute. We work to strengthen, to reform, to defend the systems of democracy and justice in this country so they work for everybody. Um, we were started a quarter century ago uh, in memory of the late Supreme Court Justice William Brennan. Um, and we, we, work on, uh, we work on voting, we work on redistricting and trying to stop the egregious gerrymandering that happens uh, all over the country. We work on campaign finance, money and politics, on criminal justice reform, and a lot of the other issues right now where there's a lot at stake. And we're sort of partly a think tank and partly a legal advocacy group. And partly we try to win in the court that matters most, which is the court of public opinion. And, and, and I should say, uh, your listeners, I'm sure I'm not the only person who said something like this, but long ago I was, I was uh, Later on, I was President Clinton's chief speechwriter, but I learned much of what I know about politics and about many other things from James when I had the privilege of working in the war room in Little Rock in the 1992 Clinton campaign. Uh, and, uh, you know, James, you had a confidence that real people actually cared about real stuff. And, uh, and if you talk to them uh, in a frank way, you could, there are no issues that are for the experts alone, that, that, that there's a majority out there for these goals if we're willing to talk to them. So we try to do that, too. Yeah, so, oh, thank you. You're swelling up an old man's <laughs> heart with pride here. Uh, <laughs> so let, let's say we have a rerun of Georgia in 2024. All right. So the Democrats, Joe Biden runs and he wins the state again. God, but 11,800 votes. The legislature can, is the Secretary of State still count the votes? Does he have a count and then they come in or how is this going to work? He's no longer on the committee that decides who won. He can take a vacation, I guess. I it's it's a little hard but to who know. Who is going to count the votes? The is county, somebody going to come in and say this is Forsyth County and this is what it, we got? You know, it's very uh, it's very messy because it's the counties. As you know, we don't have one election in this country. We don't even have fifty elections. We have thousands of elections. Counties and localities are tallying these things up, uh, and the count both the counties and the and the Secretary of State have been cut out of the final decision. Uh, I, I guess what what might be the case uh, is that you'll get the numbers in from those, you know, governmental bodies, and and they'll be tallied up. But if it really, uh, if it is really necessary for partisan reasons, I guess they'll just say, well, we're not counting those numbers. We're going to count the numbers we want and decree a winner. And you know, there's a a lot of times we're, we're very involved in constitutional litigation, and you, you see these these notions that are really made up or really kind of off the wall ideas that's if if they're pushed hard enough, they start to take on a life of their own. And that's what's happening here, not just in Georgia. It's this notion that somehow what the framers wanted, what the founders wanted, was to give unlimited power to state legislatures, that they loved state legislatures so much and they wanted to give them the unlimited power to do stuff like this. And And I've had the chance in books I've written and stuff like that, to actually look at the notes from the Constitutional Convention, James Madison in particular wrote the provisions of the Constitution that govern all this precisely because he knew that state legislatures were going to try to rig the rules to do what we would now call vote suppression or gerrymandering. They didn't have those words then. Elbridge Gerry was standing there, so they hadn't invented that word. But, but 
the idea that state legislatures are these disinterested Mount Olympus figures, much of the Constitution was designed to make sure that they didn't abuse their power. So uh, it, it, that is what would happen, I suspect, in Georgia and other places, too. So, so as I just appreciate history, founders gave the state legislature the right to elect United States senators, and that stayed in force until the early part of the 19th century. So it, it, that's a constitutional amendment. That's in the Constitution. So it, what the Georgia legislature is saying is essentially is if we're going back to the old, before the constitutional amendment, and we'll decide who is elected to the United States senator, which would strike me as a kind of a tough thing even for Alito to get around. It's, uh, uh, y- you would think. Um, uh, and, and a lot of these conservative justices like to say that they're just, you know, following history and following the text, but it often mysteriously coincides with the Federalist Society's, you know, position papers of the week before. Yeah, and the text is they changed from letting the state legislature well, pick to having the people pick, and now they want to go back and have the state legislature pick, which is in violation, at least in my own experience, I, it's violating the Constitution. And there's a provision called the Elections Clause, which is uh, which says states, uh, legislatures can set the time, place, and manner of, of federal elections, but Congress can override them and set national rules. And the reason, again, that they put that in there was because they knew it was important that there be national standards, and because they knew that you know, they talked about factions. This is what they meant, that they would try to rig the rules in their own favor. And, you know, the other part of this is a political matter that's really fascinating, I think, in 2021. It's a great clash right now. You've got these Republican-dominated state legislatures rushing forward to pass these laws. As we know, Georgia passed their law. It's drawn a lot of criticism from the business community and elsewhere. Florida just passed a law Texas is next, they're pushing it, and Arizona, they're pushing it, and other places too. And that's what's happening in the states. At the same time, there's an opportunity for Congress to act and to pass federal voting rights and democracy legislation. And the thing folks, I think, are coming to realize is these bills, the For the People Act, S1, HR1, as it's called, would stop the voter suppression wave in its tracks. It would stop it cold because Congress has the power legally and constitutionally to do that. The question, of course, is does it have the political will? And it's, it's, a, you know, it's a tough fight. But that's, it, that's the great clash that's going on. And it will affect not just right now, it'll affect the 2022 midterm elections. It'll affect redistricting, which will set the terms of all these districts for the next decade. And of course, it'll affect the 2024 election. And as you said, their goal is to shrink the electorate. Uh, they don't. They don't want all these people voting. They don't want. They don't want all these new voters voting. They don't want people of color voting, and that's what this is about. Uh, let me just stay on Georgia for a second, Michael, to make sure that I have this right. Because after dumping the Secretary of State, they have the the legislature controls that election board, and even before the election, as I understand it, they can go in if they get complaints that aren't hard to get. They can go to Fulton or Gwinnett County and they can suspend those election officials and put their own person in there. So even before the vote comes in, they can play games. Is that is that right? Yeah. And, you, you know, think about that crazy period after the election when when Trump was still as he is now, but was out there saying he really won and, and trying to 
put pressure on state legislators to act. Um, and there were a bunch of ways in Michigan and Pennsylvania and in Georgia and places like that where they could where they were trying to put pressure on local officials. Um, they could they could subpoena um, document you know they could subpoena the the ballots uh, and other things like that. They, it's already the case that state legislatures have a lot of power to, at the very least, um, make life uncomfortable for the, for the election officials. Um, but they didn't take they didn't go all the way, and they were standing in the way in Georgia. Was this uh, conservative Republican Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, who who you know ultimately oversaw the process, who, who said no, this election was fair, and 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 Trump lost. And uh, one of the one of the stories here that is I think people are coming to to understand one of the reasons, one of the ways we had such a successfully run election in the middle of the pandemic, which is again, a really remarkable achievement was Republican and democratic election officials all over the country. The, the further away from Washington you got, the, the less partisan it was. And they, they all worked together or they, they really stepped up in different ways. And now those election officials are facing threats they're facing threats of violence. A lot of them are looking to retire. Uh, we saw it in dribs and drabs again during the, the period after the election. But now there is a, a notion that the only way to be a tough politician is if if you're losing an election to attack the election officials who are counting the votes. That's sort of n not a democratic, small d democratic ethos. Michael, uh, you and, you mentioned S well, you know, HR one S one the National uh, <clears throat> Voting Rights. Act. If I had a magic wand and they said you can only pass one piece of legislation for the rest of the Congress, as important as other things are, that's the one that I would want passed. However, my understanding is while it prevents a lot of bad stuff, it wouldn't stop things like the Georgia legislature and this election board. Uh, and I, I don't know what you do about that. I think you're right about that. In, in other words, what S1 does, what HR1 does, uh, is set national standards. Right. Uh, so that everyone, wherever they live, has access to vote by mail. Uh, everyone has access to early voting, automatic voter registration, which is already the law in 19 states, becomes the law everywhere, and things like that. As of right now, it doesn't, you're exactly right, it doesn't regulate that kind of decision, which is, is a decision within a state. And I think it would be hard legally and constitutionally to do that. But there are other hopefully other ways to go at something like that. But even though it doesn't address that thing in particular, defending vote by mail, defending early voting, defending voter registration reforms, and the other stuff that it does applied nationwide would have a big impact. Sure would. You know, just so people know, the Brennan Center is, is, is just fabulous in this stuff, but you do a lot of other stuff too. And one of the things that you do, you're interested in are police reform. Uh, and I, 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 the counselor to our podcast, Walter Dellinger, that's not the top line on his resume, but he, he, I think, makes the point that some of these police killings and stoppings can be traced to our really pernicious drug laws. The cops see a young black kid with dice hanging from the mirror and they figure there's drugs in there. And the drug laws are outdated, they're awful, they're injurious, they're discriminatory. What are the prospects with a new administration and like to change these laws? 
It's a great question. And this is, look, this is something I'll be honest, where my own views have evolved. I never really was for, for example, marijuana legalization before. Um, I didn't think people should be, there should be SWAT teams, but I also didn't love the notion of big companies with big advertising budgets, you know, coming in and finding a new thing to sell to people. Um, but marijuana laws are what they are. But when you look at how they're enforced, uh, recently, I don't know if this is still precisely true, but it used to be the case until quite recently that young black men and young white men uh, smoked marijuana at the same rate. Black men were eight times more likely than white men to be arrested for marijuana possession. That just showed that it was being used. These laws were being used as a basis, as a pretext for police to be aggressive in ways that they wouldn't be able to be otherwise. Um, so I, I do think that some of the reforms that need to happen are specific things relating to, for example, the Brennan Center just put out a, a proposal uh, written. We have quite a few former prosecutors on our staff who are working now for criminal justice reform. And one of the top federal prosecutors in New York wrote a proposal uh, for taking away a lot of the immunity from law enforcement officers so that there can be federal investigations and federal prosecutions for abuse of power. And so there are those kinds of police-oriented specific things that need to happen. But a lot of the other stuff too has to do with what the laws are that are being that are being enforced. So I think that it's a, this is an issue, as you both remember, for years, this was the wedge issue. Uh, it was the issue that drove apart the traditional New Deal Democratic coalition. It, it was the it was the issue that was used uh, to you know to to get black voters and white working class voters driven apart. Some of that was because there was a lot of crime. It wasn't just a political strategy. It was the world we were living in. But we've had declining crime rates now for years and years and years. And there's really a genuine and kind of unexpected left-right um, coalition on this stuff. Uh, we at the Brennan Center work with the Koch brothers on criminal justice reform, even as we fight them on a lot of this other stuff relating to democracy. Um, it, it is something that has been conservatives and progressives. But you do have to ask, given all of that, why hasn't more progress been made? And one reason I think is we need to think a little bigger about some of the underlying laws that we're looking at. James Carville. Uh, let me let me go back to something that you said because this this stunned me. So you saying a twenty year old white has doesn't the same rate of smoking marijuana as a twenty year old black? Yes. Right. But the twenty year old black is eight times more likely to be arrested. That was the fact a couple a few years ago. It may have changed a little, but the basic fact has not changed. But basically, that it. That, that it, of course, what that does is that's another prima facie case that there is systemic racism in the United States. And anybody that says they're not is just stupid. Uh, yeah. And there's no other explanation yeah. for that. I, I think that's exactly right. So, so Mike, tell me what this bullshit that's going on in Arizona, because I don't understand it. They're having some firm, a private <laughs> firm, is going to recount the votes. What is this? So, guy? you know, they keep searching for some proof of some misconduct somewhere. And every time they do it, it's like 
when they opened up Al Capone's vault and there was nothing there. And <laughs> so, you know, remember they, they had multiple recounts in Georgia and discovered that the election machines had tallied it exactly right. So now in Arizona, the legislature, in Arizona run by Republicans, where the legislature and the governor had said, well, you know, Biden won. And, and Senator Mark Kelly won too. The state is changing. Now, months after the fact, uh, the Republican legislature said, oh, we're, we're going to have a, uh, an audit. And they hired a firm called Cyber Ninjas to do this audit, the recount. And, and when people in my office at the Brennan Center said, oh, they've got the Cyber Ninjas in there, they're going to do the recount, I said, you know, that's a pretty good nickname to give them. But really, what's the name of the company that's doing it? And that's the actual name of the company. And then it turns out that the cyber ninjas, I don't want to burst any illusions, are not a particularly well-respected um, uh, cybersecurity firm. It's run by a conspiracy theorist, Stop the Steel guy, who's posting Stop the Steel conspiracy theories on his website. Before That's his qualification for doing it. And of course, all of, I mean, the, the scary thing is now they've got our ballots. Um, so this is presumably they're going to turn up some finding that says, oh, look, what do you know? It turns out, uh, it turns out Biden didn't really win the state. Um, and I can, from everything any of us know, it's going to be bogus nonsense. And, uh, we can expect that some people will say, see, this proves that Biden is really not the president that Trump is really the president. Or so on, but uh, it, it, it's kind of a, a it, it's such a mess that uh, you know it's not even really clear what's going to happen, and it's very possible that someone may bring a lawsuit and try to bring the whole thing to a halt. Right? Do you think that the average and I, 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 this is just speculation? Average Arizona Republican legislator, if you're able to get in their head, in addition to having a lot of room to walk around. Do you think that they really think it was stolen from? That's a great. Have they convinced themselves? That is a great question. Um, and I, you know, the, the fact that according to the polls, 70% of Republican voters now believe the election was stolen. That's a fact that we all have to grapple with. And yes, it's because Trump lied to them and they believe the lie and Fox News lied to them and they believe the lie. But nevertheless, there are now tens of millions of people excuse me, who believe this and who care about it. I think that a lot of the politicians here are being deeply cynical. They know that it's not true. They have their their voters who now they think they're they're either humoring or placating. Uh, and, and, and but they know that it's not true, even though it is a real article of faith right now among conservatives. But a lot of these state legislators are not necessarily um, extreme ideologues. They're kind of country club Republicans. Um, and one of the things that is happening that's really encouraging in all this is that this is really being joined as a, as a fight in, in big ways and unexpectedly. So as I think you all know, uh, in the days around the Georgia line and building in momentum ever since, the, the business community, big corporations have really started to speak out about this and to say, hey, you know, this is, we all have views on taxes and regulation, but this is not that. This is across, this is over the line. Um, and so in, in Texas, for example, where the next big fight is, 
um, in the legislature, big companies like American Airlines and Dell Computers and Microsoft have specifically spoken out on, on against this legislation. A lot of different CEOs, a lot of companies. And I just have to think that that's going to have some impact on some of these legislators. It has already one of the reasons the law in Georgia got it, as bad as it is, it was even worse. But the, the lobbying of big corporations behind the scenes uh, kept it from being even worse than it was. So that's a new factor. Um, we've seen that on LGBTQ issues or there have been other there have been other issues where where big business has has stepped up. But th this is new for them. And, and, and I think it's encouraging. I mean, I was, uh, you know, in the Georgia corporate community is particularly influential. There are more Fortune 500 companies located in Georgia than most any other southern, but than any other southern state, I'm sure. There's a lot of companies that are located there. And this has become a new thing in corporate America. And I think it's driven as much about they have to recruit people to come in and work for them. And these young people possess the kind of skills they need don't want to be part of this. And I think it's pretty right. admirable right. young people. And it's also been driven, I've had the chance to talk to a lot of these folks uh, in different settings. The black executives in these companies uh, have really yeah. been a voice of conscience and have educated the other CEOs um, about how important it is. Right. So it's 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 interesting to see it unfold. It's too bad uh, Al's a nice friend, or your friend too, all of our friend Vernon Jordan, if he were around today, he'd, he'd be leading this he charge. Would, he would be. He would be. It's a lot of the, a lot of the people who, who, who he was close to are, are, uh, are carrying this flag. Uh, well, Michael, uh, Ken, Ken Chenault, who's been so, so important in this, <clears throat> told me when he started, he said, uh, you know, Vernon is looking over our shoulders. And because <laughs> he really did sponsor uh, a lot of those people. I would just say, uh, Michael, in, in closing, uh, your namesake, uh, I was lucky enough to meet Justice Brennan several times through our close friend, Judge Abner Mikva. And, and, and Justice Brennan was not only one of the great progressive voices in the history of the Supreme Court, he was the greatest pal ever to serve on that court. <laughs> and uh, you're, you, you guys are, are doing him great justice, Michael. Well, you're very kind. And his, his daughter is, serves on our board. Um, and uh, he's one of those rare liberals who loved people and the people, both, you know, actual people and, and the idea of the people. And, and what I'm told by the, the clerks who were his uh, legal clerks back when he was on the Supreme Court, and I never had the chance to meet him, was these new, newly minted, uh, highly over-credentialed young people would come in from these top law schools and he would, he would say to them, what is the uh, rule that matters at the Supreme Court? And they would say, well, uh, stare decisis and precedent or, or federal jurisdiction or some other thing they'd been taught at Harvard or Yale. And he would say, he would shake his hand, no. And he would hold up his hand with, with five fingers. And he said, the rule that matters is the rule of five. You have to get five votes. And he, you know, during the Warren court, uh, he was called the playmaker and he was the one who assembled the coalitions, often not putting his name on opinions uh, for the expansion of free speech, uh, political equality, one person, one vote, some of the other things, religious freedom, a lot of stuff we all take for granted. And um, uh, so we're, we're living in Justice Brennan's world, even though many people don't know his name. An Eisenhower appointee uh, and one of the great justices. Yes. 
Michael Waldman, you're one of the great guests, and you're doing great, important work. Thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, yeah thank you a lot, man. You know, you're a busy man, and take out time to chat with us, and thank you for the kind words, and uh, keep keep going after them, man. Keep going after them. Glad you're on it's our good team. good to be in the fight. Okay, James, now to the segment we love questions and answers. Jeez, these people ask good questions. It's only fitting that we're going to start with Red from New Orleans, Louisiana. And Red wants to know, since Biden plans on pointing us out of Afghanistan, would he hypothetically have cover to cut the military budget? Simple pitch. We have one less war. We can spend less money. you, You know, Red, I don't think that the... Operation Afghanistan, we were down to, you know, not that many troops. I mean, it'll save some money, but I, I, I doubt if I doubt if it's an appreciable amount of money and the, the threats in, all around the globe don't seem to be dissipating anywhere. So we're not going to have 10,000 troops out that we had before, but there's a, unfortunately, there's a lot of use to these people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, I agree with you, James. And the defense, uh, the military-industrial complex uh, hasn't suddenly uh, gone south. How, how, how much, how much sunken cost we have in Afghanistan? You know, and talking to Michael, you know, I'll go on these rants about how we lose wars. Uh, you know, one war we lost bad was the war on drugs. It had a lot of casualties in that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. a lot. It, it, it was it, that, that was a shooting war. We fought drugs, and drugs won. Yeah, yeah. we fought Afghanistan. You know the Taliban, and they won. We fought yeah. the, the Iran and the Shias in uh, Iraq, and they won. We don't win. We don't win. We don't win shit anymore. Hey, James Michael in Albuquerque, New Mexico, ask a good question. He said, "Is there any glimmer of optimism about how the census data data will be used for redistricting? Texas is gaining two seats. Probably try to gerrymander. Same for Florida's new additional seats. Northeast states are losing seats. Democrats have an uphill battle." But is this census data as bad as we have made to believe? No, it is not, Michael. The census data is not bad. First of all, the so-called red states picked up, you know, a couple fewer uh, uh, seats and electoral votes than expected. But if it is an honest redistricting, the census would help Democrats. Uh, all the gains in population in North Carolina, which gains a seat or the vast majority, are in Raleigh and Charlotte. So if it weren't for a, a right-wing Republican legislature, which controls redistricting, that extra seat would be a Democratic seat. In Texas, our friend Professor Murray at University of Houston says over 80% of the growth since the last census has been among non-Anglos. Those are primarily Democratic voters, and yet that Texas legislature is going to probably try to create those two seats for, for, uh, for Republicans. So the problem is not the census. The problem is the really, really partisan gerrymandering, and I don't know what the Democrats do, James, to stop that. I, I, honestly, I'm, I'm, I'm Admiral Stockdale. I'm out of ammo on that because they're going to do it, and the courts are going to let them do it. And, and it's going to be where the Democrats are going to have to win the popular vote in the House by some god-awful number to, to maintain control. It, it's not a good situation. Well, S-1 would help. I mean, if they pass yes, that, would help that, a lot. That would help a lot. Um, hey, James. And I think we're going to get it in some version. I, I, I do, too. I do, too. I'm, I think there's going to be a Joe-to-Joe talk, mentioned to Biden, 
uh, two guys who I think in their 70s who can deal. But, you know, maybe I'm being op too optimistic. James, you'll love the, the next question for you. Donald in Reno. Donald says he is a fellow LSU Tiger, and he <laughs> wants to know, where is the Democrat's Frank Luntz? He coined the death tax and many other Republican talking points. We flounder about, we defund the police and other wokeness. Can't we get somebody to do this? And that's very similar to what Bill in Stratford, Connecticut, who says that, you know, has Biden achieved the level of direct plain language and we are getting away from some of this crap we engaged in before? Well, I did, this is like an amazing thing. So apparently Kevin McCarthy stays or rents Frank Luntz's apartment in Washington, of which Tucker Carlson went off on a rant that, Kevin McCarthy, that Frank Luntz is a lobbyist for Google. Of course, he says he's not. He's too busy adjusting his toupee. It says he's a lobbyist for Google and went off on a rant about that. So it seems as though Frank Luntz and Kevin McCarthy and Tucker Carlson are all in just big fighting. And McCarthy claims that, well, he was just doing it temporarily and he's paying full market value. I, I, of course, I I, I, I don't believe Kevin McCarthy, but it is a it is a delicious backstory fight. It really is. Jeez, I don't know who. I mean, James, I'm just cheering for the fight. I'm not cheering for a victory. <laughs> 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 oh, uh, you know, my old friend Novak used to say it's like the Battle of Stalingrad, except we really were cheering for one side and that. But anyway, Jim in Carson City, Nevada asked, this is more of a thought than a question. How about if we had a vaccination lottery? You could like 51 million winners. You pick a number for getting vaccinated. My son told me the kind of folks that are anti-vaxxers are also very pro-lotto. This might help us get out of the faculty lounge. You know, Jim, it's not a crazy idea. Anything we can do to get more people vaccinated because they're not being vaccinated hurts others and hurts those who have. So I don't know if it's feasible, but I'd look into it. I think it's a great. I've talked about this before. Yeah. And it, there's research. If you if you give a person a choice between a $20 bill and a $20 lottery ticket, they'll take the lottery ticket. Uh, don't ask me why, but they, you know, well, up to $20, but I could win $20 million. All right. I don't think that is a crazy idea at all. I don't think it would be a crazy idea if they said anybody that doesn't have it, we'll just give you a lottery. And we'll set our own lottery. There's going to be a $50 million pot. And you get it, you get a ticket. I don't think that's crazy at all. I think we got to stop this pandemic. There's 25% of people in this country that, are, that are just choose to be stupid. I, I, if we got to pay them to not be stupid, I'm for paying them. Okay, let's see. I'd be for pay, just giving them a check if they got the shot. It's just we got to stop this thing. Carson City's gym, boy, you nailed yeah, it. And they got very, Reno very and Carson City, both. I'll dear friend you, of mine huh? called Calvin Reed, who passed away, was a teacher in Carson City for a long time. Good enough. Well, you know, James, we also always get questions from Florida. We got a big Florida, uh, a devoted Florida audience. And this is from JL in Hollywood, Florida. And JL asked, do you think Charlie Crist could take back the governorship? He announced this week, the former governor, now Democratic congressman. Uh, what do you think? You know, of course I'd be for Charlie Crist against Ron DeSantis. Who wouldn't? The, the Florida Democrats got to try to move some people. There's some, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of young talent in, you know, in the 
Florida Democratic politicians. And I, I, I'm not saying I, I, I dislike Charlie Crist or anything, but I, I don't think he's going to particularly excite any Democrat in Florida. And, you know, it, of course, if the thing that drives me crazy, we get over 60 percent minimum wage and felons right to vote and we lose elections. I, I, I think we ought to have a vigorous primary. Let's see. Let, let, let's see what they got down there. Yeah, I agree. I guess I have a little bit of a worry that too many House members from districts that may be marged and then are going to be changed with their gerrymandering manipulation uh, that uh, I think right now uh, those Florida 27 members, they have 17 Republicans. It's not a state that's 60 percent Republican and they may make it even worse. But I agree. I'm I, Charlie Crist. Charlie Crist. You know what, Charlie Crist? You know what his claim to fame is, James? What? He was a, he was a defensive back for Wake Forest, huh? He was right. Oh, there you go. <laughs> Didn't realize that. Well, he went to Wake Forest. I think he played football. At least he told me once he did. <laughs> anyway, um, didn't Alex Sink, who ran for, but is she a Wake Forest? person? She's a too? Wake Forest person too. Yes, yeah. yes, right. Uh, Judy in Westchester, Ohio, says, "What do you think of our two living former Supreme Court justices as dispassionate members of a January sixth commission?" Now, she mentions David Souter. She also mentions Sandra Day O'Connor. Sandra Day O'Connor uh, is not up to it now. She's been, she's been quite ill. But, you know, Anthony Kennedy, uh, I suppose, is. Look, I've been on this kick for a long time. They ought to pass legislation tomorrow authorizing the president to appoint a commission, a bipartisan commission, four and four, five and five. Give Congress the right to veto it if you want. I don't want Kevin McCarthy appointing members even if they have an agreement. Republicans are... Are, are slow walking this, they're stalling because they don't want an independent investigation and it's outrageous. Yeah, I, I anything that has, they have to have subpoena power and, you know, they have to be subjected to perjury. Yes. But, but aren't those two things, you know, now, look, they already got 400 cases and they're starting to, from what I read, they're going to start pleading some of these cases. This, this, this story is going to stay viable for a long, long time. And it, it appears that the sedationists, uh, they don't much like jail. They didn't think it, they can't understand why they're in there. It wasn't made for people like them. And they're not, they're not doing better. By the way, I, I think it was an outrage that they let Shelley Silver out after eight months. Yeah, I, I do too. Was I got a guy was convicted by Former House Speaker, a total crook. Right. It doesn't yeah. matter if he's a Democrat. It doesn't matter if he was expanding Medicare. He was convicted. And the, the Bureau of Prisons let him go, and in the, in the Southern District really is vehemently against it. So yeah. I don't know. I, I didn't think that was a good thing. Uh, well, it's not, it's not finalized yet. I mean, it's still under appeal, right. I think. So we'll, right. uh, we'll see. James, you got one more question. This, I, this is the kind that I like. Aaron in Little Rock, Arkansas, says, as a 32-year-old, 33 on Thursday, happy birthday, Aaron, from Central Arkansas. How do we move towards better and more progressive representation on the state and Fed levels? And I'm sure he's talking about his state, which when James got into this was a Democratic state and now has become so, so, so red. Yeah, I, I think the reality is, is that Arkansas is gone for the foreseeable future. I mean, that whole Tennessee, Arkansas, Oklahoma, Kansas belt, uh, I, 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 you know, I mean, sure, we could mayor Little Rock, 
Pulaski County or something like that. But um, you just got to keep pushing. But I, I, I wouldn't expect great results anytime soon. Aaron, that's not the birthday message you wanted, but still, happy birthday. But keep those keep those emails and cards coming because these are really, really good questions. I'm sorry we can't get to them all, but uh, you make us think. Yeah, you really do. And again, Carson City, Jim, uh, you had, I think, the best idea of the week. And uh, keep them coming. Hey, James, let me tell you about an ultimate life hack. James, you and I know this is for learning new things. It's an incredible app called Blinkist. It takes the best key takeaways for busy people like you, collecting them from thousands of nonfiction books and condensing them down to just 15 minutes. We even recommend it to Attorney General, former Attorney General William Barr. There's everything from self-help to business, health, and history, along with the latest titles from the bestsellers, and classic nonfiction titles you always meant to read, but never had time to. James, you are a Blinkist. Oh, look, I, I flew from New Orleans to LaGuardia. And I, I read five books <laughs> and then did, and did a lot of other stuff, too. I mean, it's, it, it, it's compressed. And for, you know, somebody like me that, that just likes to fidget around and go from subject to subject, uh, it's just perfect. It's just like somebody said, you know, I'm going to do – James Carver's in his mid to late 70s. I'm going to do him a favor. I'm going to get a product that's going to tell it, be tailored right to him. This is perfect. If you're a fidgety person who likes to do a lot of different things at once, this is right up the alley. It's probably great for young people, too, but, boy, it's terrific for us geezers, isn't it? It's it really great for I should have had it when I was 18. <laughs> well, all we had was yeah. the Reader's Digest uh, condensed books. <laughs> <laughs> Two recent good ones, Sea Stories, My Life in Special Operations by William H. McRaven and Untrumping America by Dan Pfeiffer. With Blinkist, you get unlimited access to read or listen to a massive library of condensed nonfiction books, all the books you want and all for one low price. And right now, for right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for War Room audiences. Go to Blinkist.com slash War Room to try it free for seven days and save 25% off your new subscription. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com slash War Room, all one word, to start your free seven-day trial. And you also save 25% off, but only when you sign up at Blinkist.com slash War Room. You also can look for the link in our show notes. Go Blinkist! Hey, James, we've got a lot of choices for the outrage of the week. Mine is South Dakota Governor Kristi Noem and former Trump Housing Secretary Ben Carson are launching what they call a campaign to stop anti-American indoctrination in our schools and society. Now, the chief target is the critical race theory, which focuses on America's history of systemic racism. They are shocked, they're shocked, mind you, that this pits one group against another. Now, there are excesses in the critical race theory, to be sure. But does anyone deny there has been systemic racism throughout our history? It's gotten better, but it still exists. I also wonder, by the way, if Carson and Noam, these educational purists, want to ban the teaching of creationism in schools. But most hypocritical of all is their outrage that Democrats and liberals are trying to pit one group against another. Imagine that, James. These two sycophants of Donald Trump 
who specializes in peddling hate and pitting people against one another, the big lie, election loss being only the latest. Nome, a governor who failed miserably in containing the COVID virus in her state, and Carson, who has besmirched his legacy as a great pediatric neurosurgeon, which he was, have no standing to lecture any Americans about values. Well, there's no systemic racism. All right. The chairman of the Louisiana State House of Representatives Education Committee, the chairman, suggested in questioning a witness that they should teach the good parts about slavery. Well, there's no systemic racism if, as long as the state legislature is not part of the system. If, if the state right. legislature is in the system, then there's definitely systemic racism. I mean, what are we arguing about here? I mean, you can't be any stupid than that. And I, like there was some Repu- other Republicans said, no, don't say that. You know, that's not a good idea. <laughs> and, and that, yeah, somebody else, James, said, said you know, defended the three-fifths yeah, clause. Then, in the yeah, they defended yeah. the three-fifths clause. That just showed what, yeah. what, what big-hearted people we were. So that is the most <laughs> asinine thing I've ever heard, is that there's no systemic or institutional racism in the United States. Of course there is. No, I mean, it, it, it's right in front of you. Every day you come with more and more evidence. Yeah, I love the three-fifths clause debate. That, that's, yeah. that's just, <laughs> I, I, you know, if it wouldn't be such a tragic history that is ongoing, you, you should not laugh about something of, of, of that nature. But these people are that goddamn stupid, all right? And, and the only thing I'd add, I, I kind of have two this week, People should watch the John Oliver vaccination piece and how in how stupid Joe Rogan and Tucker Carlson are and how stupid that 25 percent of America. And, I, you know, I read this piece of Derek Thompson, a good science reporter for the Atlantic. I don't know him, but he seems yeah. like and everybody is going out of their way to defend these people. They don't need to defend it. They're fucking stupid. All right, they shoot. I, maybe maybe they have a 185 IQ. All right, I can't tell you, tell you that. Somebody, they choose stupidity. To some people, it's just an active choice. I, I want to be stupid because there's no. There's 150 million people that have had these vaccines, and they all have something in common. They're all walking around breathing. All right, I'll take that back. 7,200 people out of how many million? Uh, that Dr. Lena Wynn, who, who's a, I think she's like Johns Hopkins. She's, she's very good. She says the effective rate is, the, the breakthrough rate is like 0.008% in the real world. These are not good vaccines. These are not great vaccines. These are stunning vaccines. Stunning. And, and the fact that you got people in, in positions of influence Tucker asking every stupid question. He said, well, he has a bunch of questions. Actually, there's an easy answer to every one of them. To every one of them. So it, it yes, I'm, about, I'm so, I'm, I'm so, it's it's just so dumb, the whole thing. Let's watch the, good point. Let's watch the John Oliver segment. Anybody who had Be sure that you uh, watch on, that. It's his latest Tucker. thing yeah. on vaccines, yeah. and, it, and, and it's really good. And I, I don't know well, what, Tucker, what to say. Yeah, I, I have contempt for Tucker Carlson now. I didn't always, and he's just laughing, I'm afraid, all the way to the back. I don't know. But, I, I, he used to be okay. a friend of mine. I, I, I don't know what, I, I think he feels himself that he's the truth teller to working class white America. I have no idea. But why you, tr- don't, make up all the stuff you want, but don't get people 
sick and die and anything like that. That makes no sense at all. Hey, thanks for listening to Politics War Room with James Carville. I'm Al Hunt. Don't forget to send your questions for us by email to politicswarroom at gmail.com or tweet them for next week's show at Politicon. Following this episode, we would really appreciate it if you'd check out the links to our sponsor, Blinkist, which we hope even William Barr uh, subscribes (laughs) to. But we deeply thank you for supporting them. When you do, you help make this podcast happen. To keep up with us, subscribe to Politics War Room on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Please rate the show with a five-star review. We'll be back next week with another show as we continue our war room planning.